1: Pain and Rehab podcast. Today, we're going to talk about everything related to the shoulder. I'm joined with my usual two other co hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, a PT out of Boston PT and Wellness, as well as Dr. Derek Miles, a PT out at Stanford Pediatrics. How's it going, guys?
2: How's it going, Mike? Doing well, Mike.
1: Not too bad. It's 2020. I think this is our first podcast of the year, right?
3: Yep. Yeah. And it's a leap day.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah.
3: At least when we're recording this. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, whenever this actually makes it to the internet, uh, this was on the 29th. So I was, uh, I'm in this like habit for whatever reason of each day when I'm hanging out with Lucy in the morning for a morning routine, I uh, say the day of the week to her and then spell it to her. And then, like, talk to her about, like, this is, you know, the importance of this day. If something, like, special happened on the day of history or something. So today I got to explain a leap year to her and then realize, like, oh, the next time this likely happens, she'll probably be around four years old. All of this is, like, obviously pretty
3: meaningless to her, but I enjoy it. (laughs) Well, if it's meaningful to you, then that's really all that matters. That's kind of what I think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, that's, like, my inner... Vic Wittgenstein i guess coming through spelling stuff to her and talking about language so
3: <laughs> so i i think the last time we all talked we, you've we've all at least you and me have been reading more like weird stuff and derek probably wants to like put his head through a wall but
2: i think he's gonna defriend us soon enough yeah. i just let you guys go and then go back to reading whatever i'm reading What are you reading these days? Um, Right now I'm reading And a Bottle of Rum, a history on how the rum trade through the West Indies and America shaped a lot of the development of our country for the continental U.S. listeners of this. And then uh, I'm also reading Logic in an Illogical World, which is an interesting book for some of the paradigms it presents in ways of thinking through problems. But... uh, some of the arguments are a little bit interesting, but I think that kind of gets back to the whole, the frame with which you have been presented arguments in the past.
1: Is it basically like we're all just illogical creatures or? No, it's it's
2: actually a pretty good step-by-step way of thinking through some of your own logical arguments. And the author actually goes through, like, it's interesting because part of her stance is she has a preference against false negatives, whereas as I was reading that section, we talk a lot about the iatrogenic effects of false positives, and I think it would be interesting to sit down and have a conversation with the author regarding how her slant is towards false negatives versus I would feel comfortable saying ours tends to be a little bit more towards false positives and just kind of parse some of that out on how we got to that conclusion.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting like uh, viewpoint. I've not really thought about it from the false negative side of things.
2: Yeah, so that's what I'm reading right now. Uh, Amato, what are uh, what are you reading these days?
3: Um, for fiction, I'm trying to finish Dune. Um, I, I do like a fiction book club with my friends up here in Boston, but I'm behind. I need to. Fin- I so I need to wrap up Dune soon. Um, that rhymed. Uh, <laughs> it's good. I like <laughs> it. It's just really long. Um, and they're coming out with a movie later on this year, so that, that'll be cool. Yeah, um, futuristic kind of like weird desert planet stuff. And then I'm also reading Wounded Storyteller by Arthur Frank, which is really good so far. I read his his memoir before that, and I liked it. So I, Wounded Storyteller is more about trying to illuminate like the patient perspective and telling their like illness story and how that can be meaningful and productive for the for the patient but it's it's like he makes it pretty apparent like it's for people who are more in the patient role but he's like if you're a provider and you're reading this the uh, this is not for you but also for you so it's like it's, it's interesting i like it um and then not my book that I can't get through is uh, Ideas, General Introduction to Pure Phenomenology by Edmund Husserl, and it's just kind of c- kicking my butt. So,
1: Didn't you say that one seemed like very – like more analytical than typical continental philosophy tends to be?
3: Yeah. He's a mathematician, so it's not surprising. And then th- I guess this book is like a compilation of several books that he kind of – Put together and revised to make his point more clear. So the first half of the book is like very logic heavy to try to set up what phenomenology phenomenology is and why it's different than psychology. I think at the time he was getting a lot of uh, criticism that he was just making up a new psychology. Um, so that's interesting because I get to kind of I had never thought about that as being like a thing that would have had conflict a hundred years ago. So. But yeah, hopefully I'll finish that soon because so I can move on.
1: Yeah, I um, you guys do better than me, I think, reading multiple books at once because I usually like start a few and then one just sucks me in and absorbs all of my attention and that's pretty much what's happened. Um, I started Being in Time uh, by Heidegger at the beginning of this year and then I started Nicole Piamatti's book, Afflicted, and then that pretty much just sucked me in. So I'm trying to finish that, which will probably be Soon. And then I guess I'm going to go back to being in time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I guess. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's not a bad read. Like I enjoy it. Um, It's just it's very similar to like having read Wittgenstein's stuff last year is uh, labor of love. Like it takes effort to get through it.
3: Yeah, it's probably the most effort I've put into reading a book where I've had to do a lot of lateral reading and like gl- glossary referencing a lot. <clears throat> but Yeah, so I need
1: to – well, I, and, uh, I told Derek, and I think I told you this, Amado, I want to read The uh, Coddling of the American Mind uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So I might try to get to that next. We'll see.
3: Yeah, it's good to have a mix. It's hard to just go
2: hardcore all the time
1: yeah anything new with you guys other than obvious book transitions
2: um, i'm moving to cincinnati and i'm looking for gainful employment at that are out there at this time but uh be heading to the midwest in july so also have that whole wedding thing coming up
1: yeah apparently you're getting married and like well, it's almost March, so I guess like six weeks yeah. now, eight weeks. So
2: Kim has six weeks left to uh, decide this was a poor decision on her part.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's. <a>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's exciting. That'll be good. And that's uh, April. So yeah, right on the horizon. And then you move like to Cincinnati pretty, pretty much right after that, don't About you? About two months later. Yeah. But I, I'm excited for selfish reasons, because you're going to be back in our time
2: zone. Yes. That will be f- spectacular.
1: <laughs> Derek wakes up to, like, I don't 28, know. 28. Like it was, it was
2: 28 <laughs> this morning. 28 text messages.
1: <laughs> That's not even counting, like, Instagram groups we're in, plus our text message
3: threads. So, yeah. yeah. There's usually multiple things going on.
2: Mm-hmm. So we're going to do a shorter podcast today,
3: huh? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Supposedly. We're supposed to talk about something related to pain and rehab. Um, All right. So we can get into this because I think that's Derek's cue to be like, let's talk about something relative today. Yes. Um, So what we've done is we, because a lot of times we come to these things and we have like articles selected and we're like, we're going to talk about this article today and it's related to this topic. And we've already done. Uh, detailed low back pain podcast. We've done one on the hip. Uh, so, naturally, like the next one we decided to do is going to be on the shoulder. We've actually written a fair amount on this topic on Barbell Medicine's website um, where Austin Baraki and I did a series. Uh, I think we have four parts total uh, going through a lot of the things we'll probably end up talking about today, but decided to do something a little bit different. I basically just curated uh, probably like 25 questions off of Instagram and we're going to get a Go through each of these. Um, a lot of them probably have some overlaps. So we'll, we'll skip some of them. But uh, overall, like people ask good questions, and I think it'll cover a lot of the common quote-unquote issues uh, we end up seeing with the shoulder. So with that said, I already answered one of them, which was what is the best evidence-based articles on shoulder rehab? Well, I'm obviously going to be very biased in that response and say Austin and I's articles on the shoulder. Um, So question two, unless you guys have something you want to add to that. I would
2: also add Jason Yer's article on biceps tendinopathy on stronger by science. Um, I have a feeling whoever was asking this was looking more for peer-reviewed articles. But what I would say in regards to yours and Austin's and Jason's article is it's hard to nail it down to just one peer review or even 10 peer-reviewed articles just because there is a wide breadth of information on this subject. And I think between the three of you, the aggregation of citations and arguments between those two articles would be a phenomenal place for an individual to start if they want to learn more about uh, just treating and diagnosing shoulders.
1: Yes, I would agree. We also need to get Jason on the podcast at some point. So if you actually uh, are one of our listeners, Jason, we need to get you on here.
3: Yeah, I would, I, would, uh, I, would, I would agree with all that. I usually send those articles to clients, patients, other clinicians as a, as a starting point.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I, th- like, I think to Derek's point, if you went through all of those citations, A, you have a lot of time. But B, I kind of hope you do, like take time. Don't just take our narratives for it, go through our citations. And then sometimes I do have people send me stuff. They're like, well, I didn't see you cited this. What are your thoughts on this? Which I actually enjoy. I like that. Um, All right. Number two, why do you think the shoulder joint evolved like it did? How does it differ from other ball and socket joints?
2: Well, I think all of us are going to be out kicking our coverage here because none of us are evolutionary biologists. Um, But if I were going to take my stab since the person predicated it with think and you're asking my opinion, um, there is (laughs) there is some actual (laughs) evidence regarding um, joint intentionality and even like pointing in some of the social constructs for us reaching towards things more. Um, So there's one slant out of it as we move more towards a bipedal. Species and being able to operate tools, some of it freed up just because you can have some increased range of motion by having less congruency in the joint, which, you know, that's where really our shoulders have evolved to play a role in.
3: Yeah, I think I've pretty much, I'm not nearly an expert on this, but I've heard like the hanging and the throwing arguments that, you know, it kind of evolved from the more primate, Uh, uses but then uh, and then obviously like you said like then then you have the more social constructs of it with like the fine motor skills attached to it
1: yeah i mean you guys have way more to say on this than me um (laughs) i don't know how much i could add to this there is a book that made this question made me think of that is on my list that i briefly started and uh typical like didn't finish but it was uh pretty good it was what is the name of it good enough um, the author is, oh, man, who's the author on this? Amato can just edit this out. Uh, Daniel Milo, good enough. The Tolerance for Mediocrity in Nature and Society, which is basically just goes through like evolutionary adaptations and it not being this like perfect system that a lot of times people talk about it. Uh, with and that it basically is we adapted just good enough for survivability purposes. So that question, for whatever reason, kind of made me think of that book. Um, it was pretty good. The little bit of, I read of it, so need to finish at some point in time. But I don't. I you guys have way more of uh, an articulate answer than I do to that question. So, all right, number three, shoulder red flags. I'm assuming this means like for our context and purposes. Uh, If someone presented to our clinic and uh, rehab, what are some things that we would see that we'd be like, "Mm, probably should kick this out for a referral or possibly investigate further with imaging?
2: Well, I think if you look at the evidence on red flags overall, prior history tends to be one of your bigger indicators that start ratcheting things up. So if an individual had a history of cancer or a history of some type of autoimmune disease, that likely would kick it up to, we may need to look at this more. Um, Obviously things like a fever or significant trauma would send you down that road. Um, The normal progressive motor weakness that we would see. And then the one that comes up and I've actually seen probably two or three cases of this in my career is some upper motor neuron positive tests and yeah yeah, so if you're getting some things like that then you would likely need to look up the chain or that that may not be a case for physical therapy at the time and there needs to be some other pathology ruled out prior
3: yeah and you you would see like other signs symptoms beyond like just shoulder stuff going on with that yes um, yeah there would be
1: other symptoms like Derek was talking about that would kind of tip the scales towards investigating this more um One that kind of I just want to elaborate a little bit on, Derek, was the progressive neurological symptoms. I think people hear that and think like someone presents with radicular or radiculopathy-based symptoms, and that is progressive. And I think there should be a, a distinction made there. That would basically be like we consulted on a case and we're seeing after intervention it's worsening or they're having very obvious like paralysis in which they're not able to move their upper extremity, which is very similar to lower extremities stuff that when they had the initial onset has progressively been worsening, uh, quite noticeably. And then if we intervened is still things are just getting worse and worse and worse, that would be progressive neurological symptoms. But I think sometimes people hear that and they think, well, they have neurological symptoms. That means immediately rush to imaging. And that that's not the case necessarily. Yep. Um, the other thing, like you guys said, like trauma, because uh, it gets a little sticky. People are like, what is trauma? What is acute? Uh, but if you reported to me like a foosh injury, like fell on an outstretched arm, and then we have like, you know, pretty good loss of ranges of motion, and I'm worried about fracture or something like that, then I would want to investigate with some imaging further uh, age of population I'm working with would change that. If it were, you know, someone who was, was uh, I, I don't like the term elderly, but older, you know, and they fell on an outstretched arm. Similar, if they fell on a hip, I'm probably worried about fracture. So I'm probably going to want to x-ray that case and see um, if I, they had other things that presented where I was worried about underlying rheumatological issues. That would probably lead me to imaging or referral. So it, it's it's tough because red flags are more like reddish and we don't have ways of asking this very perfect question or hearing this very perfect subjective history where instantly we're like, this is black and white, make a decision, move on. But there are things you're definitely looking for to try to tease out and figure out what's the next step. And the way I usually think about it is if I don't do something different than what I usually do, how does that affect prognosis? Is there going to be a a negative likely outcome because I didn't investigate further or we didn't manage this case differently?
3: When you say reddish, are you talking about the quale of red? Come on, guys.
1: Well, it really depends on... (laughs) He said it. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading... um, (laughs) Uh, what was the, the paper I just shared on Facebook the other day? Um, it was talking about from like 1998. I'm blanking on the author's name, unfortunately. But he was talking about when you see blue. Like if I looked at a blue door, I'm seeing the blueness of the door. But that's actually just a quality, not a physical property of the door. Um, this is probably if we were in our Instagram chat, someone would set up the the bad signal to like stop talking about philosophy. Austin and I would exactly. just ignore the
2: conversation. <laughs>
1: Uh, All right, number four. Uh, this is a good one. Does uh, does biomechanics matter in pain? And we're going to silo this to the context of the shoulder because that's what we're talking about today.
3: Yes. I'm just yes. Gonna say yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Would you guys
1: like to elaborate on that? Yeah.
3: I, so I think I, this is one of those, like, biomechanics itself, the word, I think it's pretty loaded, and you'll have a lot of different interpretations of it. But, you know, I just think of... Like, is our lever's torque and load applicable to someone experiencing pain in the shoulder? And I would say, like, yes, because you just have to, like, listen to what their limitations are and and what they're actually um, struggling with. And then when you test them in the, you know, clinic, you're going to see obvious responses probably to various positions and various loads. Um, And so I actually like using the handheld dynamometer in the clinic for the shoulder because it's quick and easy to use and it doesn't take as much setup as, like, when you're testing the knee. Um, so I'll get numbers on what they can tolerate and what they can produce in, like, flexion, abduction, external rotation, uh, just to give me an idea of, like, where they're at um, and if there's any asymmetries. Um, but I don't, I don't look at it in the way that maybe people... I don't know who asked the question, but the way people would think about it in terms of correcting or... You know, giving moral value to like position, which is like I'm stealing from Scott Morrison. Um, you know, it's like it's not good or bad. It's just
2: it just is. It's that second part of the sentence that always gets left off. It's like biomechanics matter some, or is it said the other way, it's like the position that we tend to get siloed into is. We'll get the biomechanics don't matter in the second part of the sentence is as much as we probably think it do it does. And <clears throat> to Amato's point, it's saying they matter isn't assigning good nor bad. It's just when someone is in a more acute state, they are probably more limited in the movements they're going to perform. And over time, our goal is to be able to increase the tolerance for the number of variability of movements, the range they can perform. And for a lot of sports type injuries, there are more ideal ways of accomplishing a task. But that doesn't inherently mean that is the only way of doing it, but we may want to push that athlete as they start uh, recovering from symptoms back towards that ideal for performance. And This creates a little bit of a dichotomy between performance and symptoms, because ideally I would like to get my athletes back to performing in the best manner for their sport, but for the most part, for the average individual, I'm much happier their training than the specificity of the minutia of like what their scapula is doing.
1: Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, Yeah, it's interesting, like biomechanics almost has become a bit of a taboo word, I feel like, in today's rehab industry. Um, But I would say all of us here, I don't want to unnecessarily speak for you guys, but we alter movement with people all the time. I think it's our why, like why we're altering movement. That is probably a bit of a differing factor amongst uh, other people in the field or on social media. So we're not necessarily to Amato's point saying, don't do this because of X or don't do that because you're going to hurt yourself or don't do that because of symptoms. And we're more just giving options for completing movements uh, to their tolerance. And so I think that's probably, we're coaching like movement With our athletes at barbell medicine and then in clinic but it's for performance performance based standards moderating symptoms not for to Amada's point moral dichotomies of good versus bad so i think it's kind of where people uh to derek's point maybe don't understand when we're talking about this is we're not saying it doesn't matter and we're not saying don't coach things it's more of the why why are you doing this and we what addition was that was that December's edition, Derek, for monthly review? Yeah, I believe so. We went, like, way down the rabbit hole of movement and symptoms. So I highly recommend people check that one out. Uh, it's a pretty good discussion by all of us, uh, Jordan and Austin, Derek, and myself. Number five, what to do if someone says they have a frozen shoulder, also known as adhesive capsulitis? Believe them?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, um, it, it can be tricky. I, mean, I obviously give them the benefit of the doubt and try to validate why or who told them that um, or why they believe that. Um, but then I also will do, like, objective testing to either confirm or disconfirm if they're having, like, passive range of motion lost because I've had plenty of patients go to see their doctor and they tell them to lift their arm and they can't and then the doctor tells them, they have Frozen Shoulder and they come see me and then you get them on the table and you can just passively move it and it's fine. So um, I think you just have to, like, make a little bit of a distinction if they're having passive range of motion loss. But then the issue comes into play of, you know, what is Frozen Shoulder and how people are trying yep. to change the name of it. And um, and it's one of those um, idiopathic In kind of injuries where we don't really know why but there's risk factors that may lead someone to developing it
1: yeah um it's interesting like usually someone's talked to the person by the time they get to me when this term phrase whatever comes up i think for me to diagnose it 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 presents with both loss of active range of motion as well as passive range of motion like global shoulder range of motion has decreased um, for me to even be like yeah we'll call this frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis I don't know that it changes a whole lot of what I do in the long run but it may change my starting point I don't tend to do a lot of passive range of motion with people but I'll do active assisted where they can kind of guide themselves through through ranges of motion like a pulley system so I may start really low threshold for these people comparatively to where I start with a lot of my other people, but the long run doesn't, it doesn't really change what I do in the long run with them. Uh, what about you guys?
3: Yeah, I, it's one of those where I try to set expectations early about like what we're aiming to do and general timeline. If I really think that they're going down like that more adhesive capsulitis, uh, path. because um, out of school, you know, seven-ish years ago we were taught you know you had you had to do joint mobilizations like you had to really crank into the like the glides um to get range of motion back um and you know if if you ever have someone and you're actually working with them and you're trying to do that you realize like how hard it is and how painful it is for them and how much little progression you make and i think i just kind of over time without even like diving into the literature that much i just ended up getting rid of all that and using an approach that, like you said, like more of active assisted and kind of just starting where they're at and, and doing strength training in the ranges that they can tolerate, you know, like even if it's just like farmer carries, um, just so they can load their arm and, and find more tolerable movements to, to load. Derek.
1: Derek. Anything to add? I mean, I think the
2: question ultimately comes down to one of the like tenets of a lot of what we talk about. It's just finding that place to start. And if you have limited range of motion, well, our goal is going to be to slowly start increasing that over time. And there isn't one right way with which to do it. It's finding what the person can tolerate, what they're willing to do themselves, and hopefully maximizing the combination of those two to start working on increasing range of motion over time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's been a couple of years since I went down the rabbit hole for frozen shoulder, um, and so I can't recall the the risk factors for it. And I can't recall there were some imaging studies coming out at, uh, on it that were kind of looking at some things, but I I don't remember enough about it to really speak on it intelligently at this point. But I don't think I would the cases that I've seen most recently. I don't really. Alter a whole lot. Do you guys recall anything on the literature on it recently? I haven't looked Mm -hmm. at
2: it. I work in pediatrics now, man. Come on. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I I figured.
1: Amato would be like my backup person on this.
2: Yeah, but I've probably seen—I
3: probably see like one, maybe one case a year—and then like it doesn't push me enough to like want to read more because like I, I yeah, I think the approach is like what Derek says, like very similar. Just kind of starting where they're at
1: yeah so this is a good segue into the next question which is structural beliefs about shoulder based on imaging findings and how to manage
2: i mean once again it's going to be contingent upon the person and what they believe what they've been told what their expectations are Um, just because if you know the base rates for a lot of these issues then it becomes a lot easier to have the conversation about this is a normal phenomenon. And when we look at things like rotator cuff tears, for example, like you see a high prevalence in the middle age population out of it. And then even like specific to athletes, there were the studies that looked at the shoulders of major league baseball players in the first round of the draft. And I think like 70% of them had some type of something that would be deemed a pathology on their shoulder, even though they were all asymptomatic. And it just makes the case that when we go looking for things, we're going to find things, and most of the time said things don't really matter as much. And then if you look at the outcomes on a lot of the interventions for things that are a little bit further on the chronic spectrum, they're just not that good to begin with. So I don't know that even if I saw that pathology, it would change me more towards a more aggressive intervention because when you look at the surgical outcomes in those instances, um, things like uh, orthobiologics or cortisone injections, the evidence just, it's not good. So I think it is having that conversation about, well, let's try our conservative measures first and, and see if we can start there before we start down the aggressive road. but it obviously is gonna change on that cell for each person along the way. And I think some of it even comes down to your own personality, because one thing I talk to my fellow clinicians about who are much nicer personalities than I would probably be considered is, you know, you can't use the same argument I do. Uh, just the way I carry myself, my own personality is going to change some of the verbiage I'm going to use that is going to differ from, you know, a 120 pound, very nice female. It's just two different presentations out of the cell of that.
3: I'm picturing yeah, like a Freaky Friday kind of situation right now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Didn't they remake that movie? I remember when I saw it as a kid, but I feel like they've redone it. Yeah, they
3: made it with like Lindsay Lohan, I think. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I think it's a good point, Derek, like finding your clinical identity, uh, which is going to influence how you interact with your patients. And your narratives obviously changed with the person in front of you. Um, for me, this gets at uh, the red flags we talked about earlier. Like, if they're seeing me and I'm direct contact on the case, it, there's only a few subset of scenarios in which I'm like, ugh, I probably should order some imaging on this. Um, and so outside of that, they may not even have imaging. And so it would take a lot to push me into the, the region of ordering it. If they show up and they already have it, then that's a very different conversation. Um, and it just totally depends on the case. It's hard to give blanket answers to this. We're gonna get into like things like impingement here in just a second. And I think that is really where we can get into talking about base rates like Derek mentioned and how's that related to this person's case. I think it gets sticky because obviously we're embodied biological creatures at some point, perhaps an area is not gonna function the way that the person's wanting it to at the level that they're wanting it to. And we'll get into that. There's a couple of questions later on about that as well. Um, but it, the beliefs are going to come down to asking the person in front of you well, what are your thoughts about the imaging or what was related to you and how meaningful do you think that is to your case and then kind of building out from there
3: yeah I think that personal part is important like because for, for every person that you know might think a small tear in and, and their superspinatus is like going to end their career there's the person who has a full thickness tear and like they don't care they just want to like go to the gym and they'll do what they can
1: Yeah, it's my concern for our narratives on social media is I think a lot of people, uh, and maybe this is on us, maybe we're not relaying our message as well, uh, which is totally possible. uh, And even just on me, but biology is a part of the equation because we're dealing with human beings. The question I find myself asking more and more, and Derek and I have had this conversation a lot uh, last year was how much does this matter for the particular case in front of me, which is very different than just saying this doesn't matter. And that's kind of how I approach uh, imaging these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number eight is there any value to using shoulder special tests? I'll answer that one. Uh, For the most part, no, not at all. There's a really good um, editorial from BGASM that talks about special tests and orthopedic tests and says, uh, I think the title is like the box wine. Of the wine industry, yeah, or along the lines
2: of that. Chad Cook, yeah, <laughs> not um, surprising. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'll do you one better, Mike, because I actually had the, uh, I guess, misfortune of teaching shoulder special tests to some PM&R residents this year, um, and Ooh. yeah, so I went through the literature on it, and we'll we'll drop some papers here, um, so. There's a paper by, I'm going to butcher his name, so I apologize if this person ever hears the podcast, Giz Mervic, Shoulder Examination Test of the Shoulder, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Diagnostic Test Performance from 2017, that found the clinical performance of single physical examination tests is limited. However, when different physical examination tests for SLAP were pooled, we found statistically significant change in post-test probability. Then we also have, which shoulder examination tests provide clinicians with the most value when examining the shoulder? An update of a systematic review and meta-analysis, which says, based on the data from the original 2008 review and this update, the use of any single shoulder or physical exam test to make a patho-anatomical diagnosis cannot be unequivocally recommended. Then we have the Cochrane Reviews. And there are two such of those, one from 2013, one from 2017, that found there is insufficient evidence upon which to base selection of physical tests for shoulder impingements, the local lesions of bursa, tendon or labrum that may accompany impingement in primary care. And the other one basically says the exact same thing. So this isn't really just a no, it's a kind of resounding no. Um, And once again, it gets back to the same base rate conversation. So if we look at an athlete who's an overhead athlete, a high-performing year-round pitcher, Odds are, if you do some type of image, you're going to find that there's a high prevalence of things that would be considered pathological. Uh, The study I mentioned a moment ago for baseball players is Lesniak from 2013. And then what's more interesting is, in 2018, there was a study by Pinnock that looked at asymptomatic little league baseball players, so younger children, and they found abnormalities seen on MRI involving the shoulder were common in low league baseball players and then the caveat because i'm the peds guy especially those who were single sport athletes playing year round so there's my two minute spiel or three minute spiel on the evidence of shoulder, <laughs> shoulder special <laughs> tests sucking
3: then we will, yeah, we will so put the, that all on the show notes yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the take home there is a no if you if you missed that from Derek, yeah.
2: that's we should have pre and post tested my blood pressure before i went down that road Oh my goodness. There's,
1: um, so I wrote up an article for BMR, I think mid last year. There was a really good study that looked at, so they did bilateral MRI on unilateral presentation of patients. So patients present with, let's just one, one shoulder that's symptomatic, let's say the right shoulder, but they scanned both, right right and left. And this was by um, Barreto 2019, and it's titled Bilateral MRI Findings. And in individuals with the unilateral shoulder pain, and so when they scanned them, obviously, what do you think they found? They found a high prevalence rate in both shoulders for quote-unquote abnormalities or issues. And the reason I really like like this study a lot is they had a seasoned shoulder, like orthopedic physician, I believe, and a radiologist examine the images to see if they would agree with one another. And the the agreement was from zero to 0.51, which, for probability's sake, that's Either just as good as flipping a coin and guessing, or less than that, on agreement, which tells you this is a bit of a complex conversation and it's not so straightforward as so and so looked at an image and found X problem to go fix.
2: Yeah, I think we've covered that one yeah. quite significantly.
3: Yeah. So don't good don't do it. Yeah. Good.
1: <laughs> um, so the next one would be uh, scapular dyskinesis. So and this will. The next several questions, just because I think this is going to all mesh together, is related to scapular dyskinesis, looking at the scapula for visual assessment, um, looking at scapular position for movements, looking at impingement, um, and then the validity of that narrative. So I, I just bring that up because all of these are going to be related. So the next part of this segment, we'll talk about scapular dyskinesis, the relatedness, if any at all, to Shoulder impingement, and then what do we do about these things?
2: So let's go ahead and start with Wright from 2013 Diagnostic Accuracy of Scapular Physical Examination Tests for Shoulder Disorders, a Systematic Review. And what they found, none of the studies included in this systematic review reported an ability to discriminate between those with and without shoulder pain or specific pathology based on findings from the scapular physical examination test. These findings suggest that scapular asymmetry or motion alterations do not provide any additional clinical examination benefit with regard to diagnosing shoulder pain or pathology.
3: Nice.
2: Yeah. I mean I also, yep. I
3: also like the Plummer article. I don't know if you get I don't know if you yeah. get into yes. that.
2: Yeah there's just this is one of those things where it's always interesting to me that we teach a lot of these things predicated upon some idea of normalcy and everyone needs to be symmetrical or some other trope out of that like we accept that there are scapular changes that come with being an overhead athlete i don't know why we would expect or expect both scapula to move in the same manner and if we look at the ability of us to discern that movement it's poor at best horrendous at worst and it's just one of these things of us liking to assign some type of abnormality to something when it is more than likely a just adaptation to what this athlete has done over time
1: yeah it's I I think my favorite article on this stuff is McQuaid um McQuaid 2016 and they kind of go about some of these like narratives like scapular kinematics and like the two to one uh ratio for like two degrees of humoral elevation one degree of scapular upward rotation and if you don't do that your tissue is going to get screwed up and you're going to pinch your supraspinatus tendon and so on and so forth and like so that t- two to one ratio came from the 1940s um and then for whatever reason just says like stuck around it's almost like don't squat with forward knee slider you're going to screw up your knees type narrative and then, when it's been looked at more over time, we realized well, it really comes down to a lot of factors. Like, was the person having symptoms when measured? Were they fatigued when measured? Were they externally loaded when they were measured? How quickly were they making the movement when it was getting done? And we found like like oh, this range, I, go figure, is on a spectrum. It's somewhere between one point one to or one to one to six to one dependent upon all of these external factors. So this whole idea of like normative scapular mechanics or kinematics is flawed in and of itself because we're trying to apply our, our idea of normal to someone else um, and it's, it's much more on the spectrum. And then as Derek you know, has already demonstrated is we can't actually visually assess it very well. It's not a valid test, it's not accurate, it's not reliable, it's not repeatable. Not only is it not repeatable, but even the intra-rater reliability of it is very, very poor, meaning if I sent you into a room to look at someone's scapular movement and I took you out of the room and 10 minutes later sent you back in, you don't agree with yourself most of the time, which is kind of comical to me. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know why this uh, is kind of hanging around. I don't understand why we were so hung up on it.
2: Well, I mean, we're 50 years into squatting is bad for your knees, so it, 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 you know, we joke about 17 years before uh, the evidence catches up with clinical practice, but for some of these paradigms, it looks like, you know, we're getting closer to the myth obtaining social security than uh, a driver's license.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like 80 years. Uh, okay. Amato, what were you going to say?
3: Oh, I was saying, yeah, and the interesting part about the, you know, validity and reliability is that, like, the plumber article looks at, like, unblinding and blinding of the assessors and whether or not they know if the person has shoulder pain. And then, you know, if they know that the person has shoulder pain, they're more likely to diagnose them with scapular dyskinesis as, but as c- compared to people that were blinded, um, if the person had shoulder pain or not. So, like, there's an inherent bias. So, like, if you know that someone has shoulder pain, you're going to be more likely to diagnose them with scapular dyskinesis, even though there weren't any differences between the control and the shoulder pain group. Um, yes. Go ahead. Oh, no, but, yeah. So, obviously, the blinding and the bias is going to have a big element to it. And then I think, like, you know, why do these things stick along? It's just, like, it's neat, right? Like, you can... You can find it and then you can, you know, then you can do your lower trap exercises and then you can reassess and see if it makes a difference. And I think that just is attractive to, again, like kind of that reduced biomedical model that we're just kind of indoctrinated into in school. Forever perpetually stuck in it. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you really take a deep dive into like motor control and like perception action, like, you know, that's not the way you're going to make differences in how someone's shoulder is going to perform like you can't you know the affordance for increasing a lower trap activation for whatever that means is i don't think it's going to make a difference down the chain as much as people make it out to be but that's a little bit of techno babble
1: well this is important because usually what gets attached to scapular dyskinesis is shoulder impingement um subacromial impingement specifically and saying well you're not moving quote unquote correctly or the way we want to see it move and then you're you're tearing your su- supraspinatus tendon basically um and that's kind of where that leads us to what are your guys' thoughts
2: about subacromial impingement as a narrative I mean what do you want to know can it happen I mean sure you can pinch your supraspinatus when your acromion like that's but do I think it's a causative thing that really needs corrected nah i it's it's not really something, I think, uh, especially with the current evidence on the prevalence in asymptomatic individuals, once again, like, I, I don't think it's a road we really need to go down. it?
3: Yeah, it's like, again, it's like assigning moral value to something that, like, can happen. Like, you know, like... Things, thing like structures approximate in the body, like all the time. Like the, things are always in contact, and they can be compressed and um, like less compressed, but that doesn't automatically mean that like more compression equals you know um, changes that are harmful. Like obviously something needs to happen for the tendon to tear. If you're finding like that structural change on the on the MRI. But I don't think the black and white of the acromions, like, hooking into your tendon and ripping it to shreds is, like, that clear. Um, I think there's more yeah. gray that can happen. And, I, and I, I don't think we can change set impingement as well as we think we could.
2: Well, that's the other fun thing to really kind of touch on here is, you know, your average rehab stint, depending on if you're one of the cash-based amazing humans who say you can get everyone better in one visit versus a standard outpatient, you're talking four to six weeks. And everything we know about training, you're not inducing any type of long-term change with whatever intervention you're doing during that span of time. So it's not like any fancy one exercise only done for that length of time is going to cause a long-term change to begin with like just across the board this isn't even directly related to the shoulder but we like to think that or it often gets reduced into if you do this one magical exercise or if you take something to end range and hold it there and oscillate for 17 times because it needs to be a prime number that it's going to Like cause some type of change. It no change takes time, and even if we wanted to say that we were going to cause some type of long-term structural change, like four to six weeks, and certainly not one visit, is ever going to be enough to elicit that.
3: Yeah, it's like it's like if you see improvement in that time frame, like what are you ascribing it to? And if you're ascribing it to like some kind of change in that impingement mechanism, you're probably correct I would say
2: yeah
1: yeah Yeah. well we have data on like you can do quote-unquote scapular focused exercises whatever that means and get pain reduction and improve improve function and you're like well yeah but that you could literally do almost anything uh, especially if you're like directly focusing on that area which is going to typically be important to patients um, you're going to get results but it doesn't mean you're getting results because of your particular intervention it just means that you did something, and that's better than nothing. So you got some results out of it, um, and then a whole other like host of factors of you know are you trusted as a clinician? Are you charismatic? Do you believe in what you're doing? Uh, lacking clinical equipoise, and so it's a, a layered conversation. I think you know the the other part of this is you also can't try to correct scapular kinematics and suddenly quote unquote fix this impingement because it does to what you guys are saying happens. It, it is just a normal thing that tends to occur with movement. And then because the the usual way this happens is someone gets shoulder pain, they present to a healthcare professional, they go looking for problems, they find supraspinatus or rotator cuff changes, they start making measurements, they look at and say, well you have decreased acromion space or you have a type three acromion or whatever and that's why you're having these symptoms and we really need to just decompress the joint and then we will quote unquote fix you and now we're getting data that's contradicting, you know, the subacromial decompression surgery that's been around with Dr. Neer also for a very long time uh, and saying, well, we can pretend to do this surgery and still get the positive outcomes without actually decompressing the joint. So, so what's happening here?
3: Yeah. And yeah, it becomes an interesting kind of conversation on like, you know, if all those interventions, quote unquote, work, then what's actually happening And I think that's when you can start trimming some of the fat and removing some of the more harmful or more risky interventions or more risky narratives and trying to get down to, like, what's the actual change coming from? Um, Is it just moving in different positions and, you know, getting someone focusing on exercises that they can do versus what they are usually painful and giving someone enough time, you know, natural history? There's a lot of things going on, but it's interesting.
1: I think my um, I shy away from the word impingement because of the negative connotations to it. But it is because some uh, I think someone asked us like, is this a thing? And to Derek's like that was what he led with. Is like yeah, it's it is it, it's a thing. It happens, um, but it doesn't lead to uh, typically negative outcomes. But I think it has a negative connotation to it, so I tend to refrain from saying things like, from, from all acetabular impingement or. Uh, impingement or internal impingement for the other shoulder impingement, Mm -hmm. because I think it just has a lot of negative connotations to it at this time.
3: Well, I'm sure you've also, I don't know if you've heard this from like patient narratives, but like if they hear something purely, like if it's predicated purely on structure, then they don't understand how like physical therapy could change or any kind of uh, physical rehab could change that. Uh, mechanism because like I've, I've seen that too with like nerve impingement uh, diagnosis it's like well if the nerves impinge like i don't get how you're gonna help me because like is it, right. at the end of the day isn't the nerve just still gonna be impinged and uh then you see how much you're like painted into a corner um just by like the the wording and description of what's going on even though we do see improvement with these diagnoses with conservative management
1: Yeah, that would be um, the paper, if people are interested, is Cuff et al. from 2017, I believe. Uh, They do a qualitative assessment on patient narratives and beliefs about why they're having shoulder pain. And one of the common ones is, is, to your point, thinking that there's a structural problem that needs fixed. So they're like, you kind of screw your own outcomes before you can even get started down the rehab and quote-unquote conservative management field because they think there's a bone grinding their tissue down. So they're like well, I'm not really sure what exercise you're going to manage it to show me or demonstrate that's going to suddenly dissolve that bone in there. Um, so, you know, a, a big thing you see across the board with uh, any type of siloed biological issue, whether we're talking like low back pain or knee or shoulder, is what is the patient's expectation for resolution of symptoms. And if you go into the, the treatment and management with a very low expectation of resolution, it's going to be very hard to make headway on that case in a lot of scenarios. Derek, you got anything to add no, to No, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I think, let's see. Okay, this is a good one that I think we could like chew the fat for a bit. With patients with subacromial rotator cuff pain, um, which if you need a different term, I just typically call it activity-related shoulder pain or general shoulder pain, or the evidence would argue for the, based on the last panel discussion, for rotator cuff related shoulder pain, which we could have agreements and disagreements over that. But if you're dealing with some of activity related shoulder pain, non-traumatic, where do you typically start with exercise prescription? And then referring specifically to exercise selection, whether it should be rotator cuff specific versus quote unquote functional things such as push ups and press.
2: I know this is gonna come as a surprise, but I'm still gonna go back to, it depends on the individual. Um, I think a lot of times we forget uh, the heterogeneity of patients that we typically see or athletes that we typically see. And if I have someone who would present with this diagnosis who their only real goal was to be doing pain-free ADLs or activities of daily living, I might start with some things that wouldn't be considered as much like specific exercise because taking it out of context uh, of that may give myself a little bit more buy-in, such as just, you know, working on reaching in different directions. And it doesn't have to be like specific reps of anything. Whereas we, as a result of being barbell medicine, tend to see a lot more individuals with a propensity for training regimens. And if that's the case, then I tend to be a little bit more predisposed to do things that would be a little bit more in the traditional exercise route. And that's because that's what those individuals are already accustomed to. So there isn't inherently a right or wrong way of doing it. It's just meeting the person where they're at, and I think especially when it comes to dealing with some of these issues in the like older population that didn't grow up with kind of the societal norms of exercise being something that's kind of expected of you. Taking things out of context and finding things that they can do, they they can increase capacity for, um, or is just as important as saying we're going to do, you know five sets of five whatever bit rpe 12 like it's just go hard or go home man <laughs>
3: <laughs> no i mean yeah it, the, the principles are the same but yeah the heterogeneity is going to change like all that approach um but you know it's often just like finding the range of motions that are tolerable loading within those range of motions and and seeing if you can make incremental change in both like tolerance to strength output or tolerance to position but everyone's positions and demands are gonna be different you know like i've seen hairdressers with shoulder pain and i've seen you know people who can't bench without shoulder pain and that's a different approach like you said like um they both might still be like horizontally pressing but you know one might be doing it with like a dumbbell floor press and the other one might be doing like a pin bench but it's the same idea yeah
1: yeah, my exercise selection is very similar to you guys. It's going to vary drastically based on the human I'm talking with and then what are their goals, what are they trying to accomplish, you know. If someone's um, not interested in a lot of resistance training, that's not something they regularly engage in, and they're just wanting to be able to do things in their daily life, um, there's a solid chance I do very like basic, sh- what, what most of our audience would consider, very basic shoulder movements and trying to improve upon those ranges of motions that they're having symptoms with and then you know sending them on their way once we get them back to feeling comfortable to self-manage and do those adls that they're wanting to do obviously i tend to make a blanket uh kind of claim or a blanket attempt to get everyone to engage in resistance training just to meet those national physical activity guidelines but that doesn't then mean like i have to have them bench pressing or i have to have them overhead pressing or rowing or whatever, albeit some of that may get done in rehab to focus on the area in which they're having symptoms, which we know exercise tends to be beneficial in a lot of cases. It just comes down to what am I trying to accomplish with dosage and exercise selection to get them back. If it's one of our power lifters or weightlifters with barbell medicine, then it's probably a lot of adjusting ranges of motion, adjusting loading, RPE, Volume, frequency, intensity within the confines of the movements they want to be able to do, and then kind of making adjustments based on their response. But uh, I almost feel bad with these types of questions because I'm like, eh, these answers aren't going to be rightfully so. These black and white, very like tangible, go do these three weird trick exercises for your shoulder and you you fix all your problems.
3: Yeah. And even to the specific question, I, I think they wrote, right? Rotator cup specific versus quote unquote functional. You know, I, I I will still, like, do external rotations. You know, I'll still, oh, yeah. yeah, I will still, like, load things that look more, like, quote-unquote, like, cuff-specific because if you're thinking about it, like, what could afford them more opportunities to move, then, you know, that might be getting external rotation stronger. But, you know, it's, again, like, it, I, you need to come up with a starting point. Like, is that necessary for that patient? <clears throat>
1: One of my favorite exercises is supine, loaded, eccentric focus, E R I R IR with the dumbbell. Like, mm-hmm. And if they're like, oh, I'm symptomatic just with my arm, I'm like, cool, there's our starting point, like just with your arm, with tempo, go in both directions, and then we'll start loading it. Um, you know, like, do we get reduction in pain and improvement in function? Sure. Is it directly related to that exercise? I have no idea. Um, but that's definitely one of my like favorite exercises to do with people. There's your like, my one weird trick, so to speak.
2: Well, but, Mike, you and I have had this conversation um, regarding some of these, like, this type of question in general, and that I think some of it really is hard to convey via any type of, like, podcast or blog or whatever we're writing, and... I'm sure a motto from your coworkers at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness, like you guys see how each other approaches it and it changes what you do. And I, I know at Florida, when I was there in the past, like working with some of my coworkers and just seeing how their like disposition was in interactions. Uh, listening to Tim Shea talk about some of the minutiae about how he explained things was helpful. And it was nothing that he ever could have set out as like an algorithm for me. But the more you're around people who explain things in different ways, the better you get at explaining things in different ways as well. Like, that's why, like, to the listeners who are clinicians out of this, like, go to different continuing education courses, even, you know, from not only us, but like, please come to ours. Um, but like other, <laughs> other individuals who just explain things differently. It, it's why just to give them a shout out. I, I know uh, a motto. You guys have Ben Cormac at your place a few weeks ago. And I feel yep. relatively comfortable saying Ben treats a different cohort on average than what comes across the three of ours desk. And It's not good nor bad, but listening to him explain his thought process makes me better at thinking through my own thought process along the way. And then, you know, I may be able to apply some of those principles when it isn't just a a lifter who's trying to get back to a competition.
3: Yeah, it's a constant process. Yeah, like in Ben's Ben's course was just last weekend, so... Yeah, it was great to, like, see how he came to certain conclusions and the way he explained it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've read that paper. Like, oh, I haven't read that paper, but it's still interesting how he came to similar conclusions, but he says it this way. And, like, if you're not reflecting, then you're not thinking about what you're doing and you're not changing it. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I think that I think we would all agree, like, that's one of the coolest parts of going to seminars and continue to is just talking to others and, like, hearing how they approach things and their thought process and, the narratives and how they talk about things helps out a lot, just hearing different viewpoints.
3: Yeah. It's also, like, and thinking about, like, my past, like, clinical internships and past clinics is, like, even just, like, not even the people but the equipment you have in the room. Like, I remember being a student and we had just dumbbells up to 10, and so, like, most of my shoulder rehab looked like, you know, weight-bearing and open-chain body weight stuff. And, you know, it's still got people better maybe it wouldn't be the way i treat now but it was different than like me hooking up the landmine press which is like my go-to that's my that's my one weird weird trick
1: i do like the landmine press yeah yeah all right um next question is also a bit involved how do you approach how long it will take or excuse me how do you approach when someone asks how long will this take to get better with multifactorial shoulder pain
2: Say, this is going to be a process, and this is something we're going to work towards, and, you know, it's different for each person. It's just, you know, a lot of times, once again, I go to the peds analogies these days. Not everyone learns math at the same pace. Some people it comes a little bit easier to, but it ultimately comes down to how much work you put into it yourself.
3: Yeah, I like setting, like, short-term goals for them, too, that actually are meaningful. So. That, and then that way they can see actual progress or we can talk about if we're meeting the goals towards the longer-term goals.
1: Yeah, it, it's really, like, case context-specific, um, but which is, like, at this point, we probably need a T-shirt that says it depends and case context-specific. Um, but I try to not set hard expectations, like, you're going to be better in six weeks exactly doing what you want to do, Um, but I try to set, um, similar to the motto, like short-term goals and then say things like very broad guidelines of, well, we should see some reduction in symptoms. If at minimal, some improvement in your ability to do the things you want to do in the coming weeks and kind of leave it at that. I, if it gets a little tricky, if you've dealt with like athletes, I think, and we have like competitions on the horizon. And then the question comes up, like, are they going to be ready in time to go back to activity, which Then I think are scenarios in which people are trying to nail you down pretty hard on, Um, and it's it's just tough. Like there's so many variables that go into it, and it's very specific to the person you're working with. But I think it's good to set some type of expectation of improvement and moving towards goals over the future.
3: Yeah, and it it can be as simple as like I know we have a patient right now that um, I I have a have a student and. Our joke is that we're, like, becoming a shoulder clinic because, like, literally all our new evals have been shoulders uh, or pa- patients with shoulder pain. Um, and, and what's meaningful to him is, like, when can I drive? And so, you know, that's his, like, that's his horizon. He really wants to know, like, when he can drive. Um and so everything needs to kind of like validate that and build towards it. But they also need to be realistic And how it's like, you know, I can't say you'll be able to drive in exactly 17 days. But, you know, here's like a range that we'll shoot for. And this is what I'm looking for clinically that will give me a better idea if, if you're prepared to drive. Um, yeah. So.
1: Yeah. I, my concern with giving hard timelines is like it, come, it comes and goes. And then someone's like, I'm not where I thought I would be based on that expectation. And now there's like, oh, there must be really something wrong with me because I'm not healing quote unquote at the rate I was expecting to. All right, so let's let's do like one more question that I think is an important one to cover and then we'll wrap this up. Um, At what point do you guys think surgery is an option?
2: Whoa, um, that's, a, that's a complex question. Um, so I think there is some decent evidence for acute traumatic rotator cuff tears. Um, in that instance, I could be convinced. Um, then if you start looking at the evidence for things like uh, anterior bank art, so anterior shoulder dislocations, yeah, um, it, it's still kind of mixed, and it's interesting to see. Um, how the different backgrounds will advocate differently. I tend to be in the camp of if you're going to have something where there's a high potential of you being exposed to a compromising position again and you have an anterior dislocation, it's an instance where I would say a a bank art is warranted. Now, if this is something to where you fell and slipped and dislocated your shoulder but your sport is table tennis i may not be as predisposed to rush in and say that we need to uh, do anything then but that's that's a complex question that needs to involve a lot of parties before um, you really have the conversation i've certainly i've actually had a few consults with barbell medicine of a few individuals who are considering surgery who were like three and four time dislocators and at that point uh, i think it's time to to talk to the surgeon, certainly.
1: Yeah, I think um, I agree with that mostly outside of the acute rotator cuff tear, which is, we could spend a significant amount of time talking about that. Um, and I think there's a strong case for conservative management first there. But if you're presenting with like multi directional instability and continuous dislocations, I had a consult recently where we had this discussion. And I was like, if you're, if you're just dislocating like multiple times regularly with ADLs or the sport that you want to play, then I can see a pretty strong argument for probably going and having uh, surgical intervention for that. Um, you know, it, I think the other part of this that usually gets brought up are going to be arthroplasties. At what point should someone go in and have a shorter joint replacement, which I think is a very nuanced discussion. And I don't know that we have clear cut that should go get an arthroplasty. Um, but I think outside of that, definitely dislocations, that makes a lot of sense to me. If it's a continuous thing that's occurring, you're not being able to be functional at the level you want to be at, then I can see you know validity for that intervention in that case. Motto, what do you think?
3: I would agree. I, I think I the think other thing I've talked to patients about too is like what post-op recovery looks like. Um, I, I, I haven't, at the clinic I'm at now, we don't see a ton of post-operative shoulder cases, but my first um, job at, at an outpatient hospital, um, I saw a lot of rotator cuff repairs, and I, I don't think people are, like, well-prepared to know what that recovery looks like, and it's, like, similar to, like, you know, ACL timelines. Um, so just painting, like, a realistic picture of, like, what does conservative treatment look like? Um, you know, do we think we've taken it as far as we could, you know, it's obviously case dependent and, uh, pathology dependent, but, and then, you know, do, are you going to have three months to dedicate and like take time off of work? And, you know, it's, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, and I, I, I feel like I'm mean, might just be a bias in my clinic right now, but I really haven't seen a ton of rotator cuff repairs in a while. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing. Uh, either like, mm. either they're being done less or I'm just not seeing them, but I haven't looked at the literature in, in a while.
1: Well, I think hopefully this discussion gives people a good like broad overview of a lot of various topics that come up when we're talking about the shoulder. I mean, my obvious bias is, say, help the individual in front of you versus siloing everything you know, minutely down to just a body region, but um, that tends to happen just because of the model we're in. Um, and, and this will hopefully give you a broad overview. If you need more information, I think you should go check out um, the articles we talked about previously, the blogs online by Austin Baraki and I, as well as Jason Ure. Um, Derek and I teach a seminar. Uh, we'll be in Australia next for 12 days in May. Um, and so that'll be our next upcoming seminar. But we actually have an entire lecture dedicated to the shoulder that I teach. Um, we go through a lot more detail of these topics. And then um, we also have the Barbell Medicine monthly review that you can subscribe to for really cheap. It's like $24 a month. It gets delivered to you in your inbox each month where we dive into a lot of these topics, not just to the shoulder, but pain, rehab, medicine-related, health-related fitness, and training. So I think that's a really, really low barrier uh, at that price point to get a lot of information directly to you. And then always you can reach us out, reach out to us. We're all on Instagram. Um, I'm just Michael underscore barbell medicine. It's Amato underscore Barbell Medicine and then Derek underscore Barbell Medicine. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully this has been beneficial for you and we will try to do more of these in the near future.